This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Sounds like we're on and ready to go. This is probably one of the most uh, subject that people really like to avoid, and yet it's probably one of the most important subjects we have in the Adventist Church. And we are going to get into the scripture today as well. I'm going to, I'm not going to strictly stick by the church manual because of, I just want to make this a really teaching time for us. And so we'll get into the scripture here in just a little bit. But here's the, under the chapter on church discipline, I want to set this out here. The Bible and the spirit of prophecy set forth in clear, unmistakable language the solemn responsibility that rests upon the people of God to maintain their purity, integrity, and spiritual fervor. And all of those three go together. If members grow indifferent or drift away, the church must seek to reclaim them for the Lord. Um, So that's a pretty solemn statement. It's a very serious statement. Um, that we are to take this whole issue um, very serious. I made the statement yesterday, and I'll make it again today. I don't think it's possible to have real church growth without having church discipline. Uh, I think it's impossible to do it. Um, We can have growth, but it may not be true kingdom growth. Um, A lot of people shy away from this subject because it's a difficult subject. And it's become more difficult because of the way we've approached some of these things. Um, so I want to I uh, move ahead here. How is the health and ch- uh, purity of the church preserved? No church officer should advise. This is, very, this is by the way, coming from 7T, 261, 263, Church Manual, page 57. It's an Ellen White quote. No church officer should advise. No committee should recommend nor should any church vote that the name of a wrongdoer shall be removed from the church books until the instruction given by Christ has been faithfully followed. When this instruction has been followed, the church has cleared herself before God. The evil must then be made to appear as it is and must be removed, that it may not become more and more widespread. The health and purity of the church must be preserved that she may stand before God unsullied, clad in robes of Christ's righteousness. It's quite a statement. So this is another place she talks about uh, our schools uh, in the context of our schools. She, she talks about lowering the standards in our schools and that the argument would be if we don't lower our standards, then people will not attend. She says, fine, let them go to other schools. She said... The school's reputation should be based not on its numbers. Sometimes we lower the standards, we have higher numbers, and then we say, she says we make that an issue of great rejoicing. She said the real rejoicing should be is are those schools um, and its faculty and its students, are they doing the will of God is their virtue in their characters. Uh, and that should be the real issue of rejoicing, is their Christ-likeness in their characters. 
That's kind of an interesting view. It's a very different view than what we have with all the church growth mania. I'm not talking about in the Adventist church. I'm talking about in the Christian world that we have uh, and all that kind of a thing uh, in the world that we have today. So uh, that doesn't mean we want to be small. Do we want to convert the world? Absolutely. Do we want every soul that we can find? Yes. Uh, but, and we need to be very careful uh, with, with church uh, church discipline. What is the great object of church discipline? I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to give you three ways that the church today approaches church discipline. This is, again, Church Manual, page 56, is a quote from 7260. Human beings are Christ's property, purchased by Him at an infinite price, bound to Him by the love that He and His Father have manifested for them. How careful, then, should we be in our dealings with one another? Men have no right to surmise evil in regard to their fellow men. Church members have no right to follow their own impulses and inclinations in dealing with fellow members who have erred. There should not even express, they should not even express their prejudices regarding the erring. Very interesting. For thus they place in other minds the leaven of evil. Do not tell others of the wrong. One person is told, then another, and still another, and continually the report grows and the evil increases until the whole church is made to suffer. We are really suffering on this kind of thing today. Somebody does something wrong, and the first place we want to do is get on Facebook and tell it to the world. And we're just aping the, the media today. Ellen White says about that, that secular world today, that the, they, they love the sin, but they hate the sinner. How do, you, how do you know that the media loves the sin, but hates the sinner? Because they condemn the person who did it, but they keep recounting and regurgitating the evil in all of its horrible details. It's a terrible world that we, that we live in. So I see your hand in the back there. Uh, you have a comment you want to make. Hang on just a second. I'm just wondering how you would reconcile that statement with some of the church policies that are coming into, at least in my conference. I'm from the Upper Columbia Conference. Uh, they have started a policy whereby every member gets background checked in order to work with the youth, pathfinders, young people, children's Sabbath schools, whatever, if you're going to be involved in the church, you need a background check. In fact, some churches in the conference have discussed having everyone background checked before they're even baptized. Uh, That, to me, means that you're suspicious of evil in all of the brethren. What do you think? Well, uh, unfortunately, we live in a very ugly world. Um, Yeah, if you're... I will tell you that um, she's talking about publicly making people's sins uh, apparent. What uh, we have, we have a shield of vulnerable. Where if you're working with children in our conference, it's an educational program as well as it does do background checks because we want to make sure that children are protected, but we don't take that information and broadcast it uh, around. Uh, it's a state law in the state of Michigan that if you're teaching in a, in, an, in a school that you have to be fingerprinted. Again, that is private information and it's protected information. 
Um, so, I, but I appreciate what you're saying. We, it's, it's a difficult thing to be, we got to be careful that we don't, that there's a balance between protecting and not advertising the sin at the same time um, protecting our kids. So, I don't, I don't have a totally good answer, but I do believe we've got to protect our kids. Um, here's some of the challenges that we have in our world today. The Internet is a sewer, um, or it can be. You can turn on spigots of sewer, I'll put it that way. And, and so today we're educating little kids in the grossest stuff of Sodom and Gomorrah today. And these kids' innocence is taken away from them. Adults have taken them. Stuff people would never, ever look at. They're going and looking at it on the Internet today, and it's affecting behavior. Um, and we're, we're just creating monsters between that and the media. But her point here is that we should not be evil speaking of one another. We shouldn't be going around saying to somebody, do you know what I know about so-and-so? Uh, if there's a church discipline issue... People get it on Facebook, and everybody in the world thinks they have a right to weigh in, and we try to do church discipline by blogs. Uh, there's, a, there's a reason why church discipline is left to the local church. It's not a conference uh, issue. It's a local church issue, and they have the authority for that. Um, I've just been amazed at some of the stuff that I have seen, and it's like folk never read that uh, particular uh, thing. All right. Um, if it's my wife, I'll answer. No. <laughs> let's, uh, let's go on. Okay, there are three kinds of church discipline. The first one is what I would call uh, an ostrich discipline. What, I don't think I have to explain that, do I? Uh, I, I had a, um, I won't tell you where, but uh, I had a church some years ago who had a, a young couple in their church, and they were living together without the benefit of marriage. And um, the church was kind of stirred up about it, but the elders didn't want to do anything about it. And they just said, well, we'll just leave them alone because eventually they'll get married anyway. Uh, that's ostrich discipline. It's not, it's not caring about the individual. Uh, the reason you coach your children is because you care about them. Am I right? Uh, you, you're not in the punishment business. So that ostrich, there's a lot of that that goes on. You know, it's kind of like the church is a social club. If there's a misunderstanding of God's mercy and grace, uh, the minute, the minute uh, somebody wants to uh, discipline somebody in the church, somebody pops right up and says, oh, what about God's mercy? What about God's grace? Let's sing amazing grace. And yet you got this person out here in open sin, uh, carrying out open sin, but the first thing that we want to sing is Amazing Grace. Well, we certainly need to sing Amazing Grace. Um, that's for sure. But we have a misunderstanding of God's mercy. God's mercy and God's grace are not licensed to sin. Uh, we are not um, uh, predestination kinds of people where we say once saved, always saved. We don't believe in that. We don't believe that grace gives you a license to sin. Uh, I think it lacks caring on the part of the church. And if you don't care about your members, then you're not ever going to say anything to them about sin. You just hope they get it by osmosis, maybe from the pulpit. But they're living a life. Maybe they're breaking the Sabbath. Maybe they're, going, they're working every 
uh, every other Sabbath or something, or maybe they're working Friday nights. And we say, well, you know, that's not, I don't want to hurt their feelings. It's a lack of caring not to care front people who need spiritual help. That doesn't mean you're trying to rush to get them off the church books. That's not the issue. The issue is that you want to redeem them. You want to draw them back some way, somehow, by the grace of God. Um, it lacks courage. Uh, and and I, I will tell you, that's a difficult thing to confront people, care front people about something going on in their life that ought not to be going on in their life. And I'm not talking about every nuance. I mean, there's certain personalities, you know, they've got their checklist when they come to church, and it's pretty extensive. When I say checklist, I mean, it's just an attitude. I'm being facetious. But, you know, they're, they're constantly looking. They passed you in the grocery store, and they took a careful look at what you had in the grocery basket. Uh, you know, that kind of an attitude. That's, that's a terrible attitude. You don't want that kind of attitude going to the church either. So it's not that kind of thing. I'm talking about where something is obvious in a person's life that really needs help and, uh, and so forth. We're going to talk about some of that here. So we have to have courage, but the right kind of courage. It's, it lacks responsibility. Uh, it means that we're not going to be responsible for our, uh, our church family. Uh, lack of doctrinal clarity. It sends the wrong message to all members, especially to our youth. It, they say, hey, oh, they can do that. It must be okay for me to do it. So it's not important. And what we say we believe, we don't really believe because we don't really expect our members to abide by it. Well, here's another, another one. And this is, this is prevail, uh, prevalent too. I call it judgmental discipline. And there's where the church becomes a court. So we're going to become a court. We're going to have a prosecutor. We're going to, uh, the church and business session becomes the jury. And the object is to determine guilt and punish the guilty or acquit the accused. There's that mindset. And you hear this a lot. You know, uh, if you get into church discipline, uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but you get into church this and say, well, this is not fair. They're doing this to so-and-so, and they didn't do, five years ago, they didn't do X, Y, and Z to somebody. It, it, that's a judgmental discipline. Because in their mind is you have to apply the law to make sure we got everybody punished just alike. I want to say something that sometimes people don't understand. Church discipline is not for punishing the guilty. It is not for punishing. The church is not a court. Now, there is a day of judgment coming. But our business now is not to punish the guilty. Yeah, ultimately, that's God's job, not our job. But what is our job? And what kind of approach do we take? Now, the church manual doesn't use this, but I use this as my terminology and I think it's a very descriptive of what I find in the church manual. And that is, we believe in redemptive discipline. What do we mean by redemptive discipline? Yes. You want to speak to that? Well, what I understand is of dis- redemptive discipline is basically showing the wrong person where he's wrong and able to lead him to where he is in the right. Okay. That's pretty good. 
That's pretty good. Well, redemptive discipline involves restoring, and that's a key word, restoring and redeeming the guilty. So if we find somebody that's erring, what we really want to do is to bring them home, not clean up the church books. I'm, I'm talking about a mindset here. So I want to bring them home. I want to bring them back. I want to put them back into the church family. Uh, number two, it carries out the main mission of the church, and the main mission of the church is to what? Save. To save the lost. The object is not to punish, but to redeem. I'm telling you, this is, is, this is hard for people to grasp. I've watched it over and over again. I've watched local churches struggle with it. I've taught this class many times, and I still see local churches really, really struggle with this. And, and they said, but we were nice. But, you know, we, we got to treat them all just alike. I said, you didn't get it. Because what you're really interested in, you'll see what I mean by that in a moment, really interested in is getting them plugged back into the church family and operating again. Now, there are similarities between judgmental and redemptive discipline. Both judgmental attitudes and redemptive discipline, both of them involve in dealing with guilt and sin. Otherwise, you wouldn't be involved in redemptive discipline or the word discipline at all if you weren't involved in dealing with people's guilt and people's sins. Both must make judgment in regard to specific behavior. So it's, it's, you can't stick your head in the sand and say, okay, what is the behavior that we're dealing with? And you have to decide if that behavior warrants a redemptive process. Both must take decisive steps. You can't just ignore this. Both can be viewed by the guilty as punishing or rejection. That's a hard thing to do. And uh, it's because people sometimes don't understand, well, you just want to punish me. I'll tell you a story. I, uh, I won't tell you where I was at, but uh, it didn't happen in Michigan. It was in another place. But uh, we had a wonderful church, and it had come to our attention that uh, we had a person who was living in another state with a person that was not their spouse. And um, I think they'd already gone through a divorce, but they were living without the benefit of a marriage. And so it came to our attention, and so we, tried, we wanted to get in contact with this person so that we could reach out to them and try to minister to them. So we, may, we didn't know how to get a hold of them, so we went to visit their, their daughters. Uh, and I, I sat down, had an elder with me, and we were visiting with a daughter and so forth. And I, we said, you know, we really need to get a hold of your mother uh, because we're concerned about her, spiritually, her spiritual walk with God. And boy, you think I just, un, you know, that I just flipped on a switch that brought lightning down from the ceiling. Um, all of a sudden, the beha- I mean, the demeanor changed. The person lashed out at us. And, and uh and that lashing out said to me, says, well, I, I, I hope that if your mother, if your mother ever has a problem, you know, that somebody will treat her this way. I'm still kind of shaking, uh, you know, trying to wipe off the, the electricity that's uh, been thrown at me here and saying to myself, they didn't get it. But that gave me an opening and an opportunity. You always have to go with a heart of love. You cannot in a heart of understanding. And I never will be, remember 
forget looking at this person quietly and thoughtfully and saying, you know, if my mother ever gets into this kind of problem, I hope somebody loves her enough to reach out to her and restore her. And that answer broke the dam. And, and the demeanor changed. And they said, oh. I said, all we want to do is save her for the kingdom. I, I don't have an agenda here except to redeem. I said, oh. And so then they gave us the information and we were able to work through a process. Um, and I want to talk about how to work a process in redemptive discipline. I'm just kind of giving you an overview. I'm going to go to Matthew 18. I hope a lot of you, if you don't have your Bible with you, maybe you'll have it on your, your uh, phones or iPads or whatever. But let me give you, continue to give you a little overview. And then I'm going to go and I'm going to point out some things in Matthew 18 that most people don't think about. I hope um, it will be a help to you. Okay, and both judgmental and redemptive discipline can have eternal consequences. Why is redemptive discipline different? Why is it different? The ultimate goal of redemptive discipline is to restore the lost or erring one. I cannot, I cannot pound that down enough. The attitude of the church, what's that word? The attitude of the church is to save not to dispense an eye for an eye. I've, I've seen situations, you know, where there is a, there's a divorce and God help us with those things. I'll talk about some of that uh, here in a little bit. And the injured party is very anxious for the church to come in and disfellowship their guilty spouse because they just think that we, the church has just got to punish this person. Well, certainly something needs to be done. But we're not in the divorce business. We're in the redemption business. We don't want to lose either the unguilty spouse or the guilty one. We want to save them both. Now, that doesn't mean we stick our head in the sand either. But we're in the business of trying to save people, not lose them for eternity. Um, so uh, the attitude has got, to be, has got to be an attitude of trying to save. Now, this... Third one is where we get into a lot of misunderstanding between judgmental and redemptive discipline. Three, the pain of the process can stop if the erring one repents. In other words, if you've got I'll, I'll give you another example. It didn't happen in Michigan. happened in another place. happened while I was pastor. Um, and, and this is always painful. But I had, uh, I had a call from one of my elders one night telling me that, um, that his wife had had an affair at work. And he was devastated. And we spent quite a bit of time talking and counseling together. And so I, I asked him, I said, well, how does she feel about it? He says, well, she's sorry. She's brokenhearted over it. He was thinking about leaving, which would be normal. 
And I said, well, do you still love your wife? Oh, yeah, he said, I still love her. You have children? Yes, we have children. I knew that, of course. I said, well, why don't you forgive her? Um, so I began to work with that family. He said, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going, after a little while, he, he told me, by the way, he stayed, he didn't leave, he forgave his wife, kept his family together, and then a few months later it came to me after all this, says, I think I need to resign as an elder because of all that's happened. I looked at him and I said, no, I don't think so. I think you might be just one of the elders we need here because you have exhibited the power of Christ and His forgiveness. Now, I never did take that to the church. Exactly. Exactly. The desire goal happened. We got repentance. Isn't that what we wanted? Isn't that what we were after? Now, some people say, that's not fair. You know, 10 years ago, they disfellowshipped X, Y, and Z for... Because it's ju- that's judgmental discipline. We kept it bound in that family. This is not something that's broadcast everywhere. And I'll get into who gets, needs to be redeemed in all of this. But this family was held together. The children were raised with their own mommy and daddy and... And he continued to function as an elder there, and they were a real blessing to that church. And um, because of forgiveness and restoration, and because that's what we wanted. Now, my Bible still says in two places in the New Testament that love covers a multitude of sins. Now, if that had happened in this day and age, and somebody found out about it, they would have put it up on Facebook and blasted the local church because it still had an elder who had a wife who had a problem. That's the kind of world we live in. Someday, there's going to, those kind of people are going to answer in the day of judgment. I'm telling you, there's a God in heaven that just, I think it makes him livid. Um, and I can't speak for him exactly, but my point is the pro- pain of the process can stop if you get repentance because that's what you're after you want to see repentance and uh, and restoration okay you want you want to make a question on the subject of uh, everybody talking about oh did you hear about so and so and what they did with so and so ellen white says that that type of gossip is the same thing as cannibalism well, that's not too far off. It's a pretty good statement. Um, and we have to deal with certain things. In other words, when you have responsibilities and you have to have certain kinds of information to carry out those responsibilities, we understand that. But just, I, you know, God forbid that the world knows what I know about people. I, I want it buried. If you're a pastor, uh, ministerial director, uh, in fact, I tell the people around me, you don't have to tell me everything you know <laughs> about people. I don't want to know. I, I, I know enough already. Um, if I need to know in order to carry out responsibilities and that kind of thing, but I have no desire to see people's sins paraded before the world 
And a lot of times they prayed them for the world with a lot of delight. I mean, they're really, you know, and they do it self-righteously. Well, you know, I'm doing this because whatever. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. Yeah, please pray for Saul. I just told you all the secrets of their life. I just spilled everything they've ever done. I've just painted them in every color there is to color. Now, please pray for them. Thank you. I'll remember that little illustration. Um, so, um, but... Yeah, you know, that's the kind of world, unfortunately, we live in uh, nowadays. So this, the pain of this part, this is the one that, hurt, that most people don't understand. They don't understand why it should work that way. But if you don't understand why uh, redemptive discipline exists, then you won't understand that and you want to get the person punished uh, kind of a thing. Number four satisfaction for redemptive discipline is not punishment. The church is satisfied when one is what? The court system is satisfied when one is punished. The church is satisfied when one is restored. Number five, like the Heavenly Father, you guys watching me on time here? Okay, all right. Number five, like the Heavenly Father, the church's redemptive arms are what? They're always open. Uh, that's because we're trying to save people. That's why we exist. We're into the kingdom of grace right now. Number six, redemptive discipline are, uh, is God's answer to keeping members out of the day of judgment from which there's no appeal. I tell people, look, there's a day of judgment coming, but the reason we have redemptive discipline in the church is not to send people to that day of judgment, but to keep them out of that day of judgment. That's why we want to save them. So we must ask this question. Who is being redeemed in this process? The first consideration is the lost sheep. Now, I just gave you an example of of one where... We kept that in that circle, redeemed that uh, situation, and I praise God for that. Now, if that had been wide open and all over the place, we, we have to have some other considerations here. We also, must, we also must redeem the name of the Lord Jesus. Because when somebody has done something real open, the name... If a person is working on the Sabbath, they say, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, and the whole community knows they're Seventh-day Adventists, and now they start working on the Sabbath openly, and everybody knows it, and then we redeem them, we have to have some way of saying to the church uh, and, and to the name of the Lord Jesus that we don't think that that was a good thing to do. The third consideration is the redemption of the injured church. Again, I'm talking about something that is just kind of blasted all over everywhere. Number four, the fourth consideration is the injured community. So we have to take these things in, into consideration when we get into, that, um, uh, into those uh, areas. Uh, so that maybe that the... I'm going to talk in a little bit. I'm going to talk about uh, disfellowshipping. I'm going to talk about censor and how all those things kind of kind of fit in here. The process of, rede- of, of, um, of discipline, there's four steps. Most people think there's how many steps? Most people think there's three. I'm going to show you four. Now, this is where we're going to take our Bibles out and we're going to spend some time, uh, and I probably won't get through this 
Um, but I want to spend some time here, and I'll give you some more illustrations here as we go through. But let's go back to, over to Matthew chapter 18. We'll spend some time together there. Um, Matthew 18 is one of the most abused chapters in the Bible. <laughs> some people try to apply it to everything in the world. I had a person one time, they wrote an article in one of our magazines, and uh, the article um, had real challenges, and so I wrote a reply to the article in some kind of uh, uh, back to that magazine or whatever, and the person called me up personally and chided me for it, saying, you didn't follow Matthew 18. I said, I don't think this is a Matthew 18 deal. You published this openly, and... And so when you did that, you published it for people to openly respond to it. I don't see how Matthew 18 applies to this. Now, Matthew 18 deals with a couple of major issues, and sometimes we mix them up, and sometimes they, are, they got cross-generation. There is the kind of thing where there is a fuss between me and X. Understand what I mean? He, he, we had a business transaction and he did me wrong and he owes me money and he won't pay me and he says he doesn't owe me money and I think that he does and so we've got a personal thing between us. Okay? These steps also apply to that in that sense. But then there's the issue where you have a member who is, I use breaking the Sabbath or whatever they're doing, that needs to be redeemed. And it, it applies to them that way too. It, the application is a little bit different in each case, but I'm going to focus on that latter one for the most part in what we're doing here, although we can get into some of the other if you'd like. I think the whole chapter deals with redemptive discipline. I'm going to, I want to start with verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child to him and set them in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives this little one, um, this little child like this in my name, receives me. Now, what is Jesus doing? That's an odd way to start this whole, whole thing. But you have these disciples who are still haven't quite got it. Jesus says you're unconverted. That's interesting. The 12 disciples, unconverted. Or maybe not totally converted. Not totally understanding of what it means to be part of the kingdom of heaven. They still have the pecking order mindset. You know what pecking order is? Anybody raise chickens or horses or anything like that? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Well, we do the same thing in and we do the same thing in church. You know, we walk in and we size each other up. Well, oh, uh-huh. Uh, down here somewhere. This one's here. This one, we we do pecking order in the church. And that is never the will of God, by the way. Never the will of God. We praise God for people's talents. But people who may possess five talents are not better than the person who possesses one. It's only what they do with the talents that they have. But the disciples were in the business. They were sure Jesus was the Messiah. Sure he was going to set up the kingdom. And they were sure that they were going to be part of it. And they were all 
doing this. And if the disciples had elected somebody to sit next to Jesus, guess who they would have elected? Judas. He had five talents, by the way. Smart, charismatic, savvy, street smart. And could really connect. He would have been the first candidate. Aren't you glad Jesus sees things different than we see them? Um, At any rate, uh, so Jesus understands that if this goes on, if this becomes the DNA for the church, the church is destroyed right from the get-go. He has to correct this evil. So he corrects, he begins the correction process with Matthew 18, and he says to them, look, you've got to change the way you relate to one another. Takes a little child, puts it in the middle of them, and basically tells them they've got to humble themselves before God, and they're not in charge. God is in charge. In a little child's life, in a five-year-old's life, who's in charge? Unless you've got parents that are crazy. Hopefully the parents are in charge. And so he sets them in. Who does that little child should it represent? It should have represented every one of the disciples. He says, you've got to be converted and become like this little child. In other words, everybody in the church has to look at themselves as God's children and that Jesus is the one that's really in charge of this thing. And then... Um, Because I believe in the first part, what Jesus is doing is trying to set up prevention. We get to these four steps, and that's where everybody's mind goes. We say, talk about church discipline. That's not where Jesus goes to start with. The first place that Jesus goes is he goes to prevention. How do we we keep getting from getting there? That's what we should know and ask ourselves. Because I don't want to get there. I'd rather not get there. Prevention... In this case, an ounce of prevention, my mother used to tell me, was a pound of cure. In this case, an ounce of prevention is worth 10 pounds of cure because you'd rather not get to those four steps. So let's take a look at prevention for just a little bit here. Let's go down to verse 6. Still with me? All right, you're pretty good class. Staying right with me here. Verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a millstone were hung about his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Whoa, that's pretty tough talk. Who, for, I'll ask you again. Who is the little one? We are, exactly. It's members of the church. Even more focused, it's members who are new coming into the church. Have you ever had a church that all of a sudden had an influx of new members? You ever watch what that does to the old members? In some situations, not all situations. In other situations, they're able to just handle it beautiful. But in other situations, it it causes distress. So how do we, so what's going on? I mean, it's the human heart again. It's the fear that somehow I'm going to be displaced Yeah, instead of saying, you know, God has given me new brothers and sisters, and I'm so glad. Maybe some of them will be able to use their talents for God's work. And 
listen, I'm going to tell you that we operate so often on the mindset of scarcity. God has plenty for all of us to do. I, I was listening to uh, some years ago to John Maxwell. I, he does a lot of good stuff. I don't agree with every little thing he does. I don't, if you looked at his stuff on leadership, he's got some pretty good stuff. But uh, one of the things that he was saying is that what I really want to do, he said, is I want to train people all around me that can take my place. And he says, if they're better than I am and they can take my place, I'm not going to worry about it because God will have something else for me to do. Don't you love the attitude? That's, that's big-hearted. That's the right way to look at stuff because you're saying to yourself, yeah, I want the best for God's work. So he, he told a story about he told a story about a, a pastor. He says, you know, the, the worst people in the world to work for are people that are insecure. And he, and he said there was this pastor. He was talking to this pastor. not an Adventist pastor. He's talking to this pastor, and this pastor says, I, have a, I had a new young intern minister coming in to work with me. He said, he said to John Maxwell, he says, do you, do you know what I told him? And Maxwell said, no, I don't know what you told him. He says, I took him into the church, and I took a piece of chalk, and I drew a circle around the pulpit. And I told him, I said, listen, you'll be okay here as long as you don't step foot in that circle. And Maxwell says to him, what? What did you say to him? That's insecurity. And, and unfortunately, because of sin, we all have a lot of insecurities. And sometimes those insecurities make us develop pecking orders in the church. We feel secure because we know who's in the pecking order. Let's go back to, uh, let's go back to the book here. Uh, when Jesus says it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck, notice, that, that's, I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. Verse 7, woe to the world because of offenses. Offenses must come, but woe to the man by whom the offense comes. Another translation uses the word stumbling block. What is a stumbling block? Yeah, it's something you trip over. And it's worse if I put it in your way, if I do it on purpose. If I make you stumble and I put something there to make you stumble. How many of you want to be, nobody will raise their hand, but just rhetorical question. How many of us want to be stumbling blocks in the church? What does it mean to become a stumbling I'm talking about prevention before I ever get here. And I think if we don't talk about prevention in the context of redemptive discipline, we still won't get it. So how do I become a... I'm a a member of the church, established member of the church. How do I keep from becoming a stumbling block? And what is a stumbling block? And how do I define a stumbling block? Well, let me take you and to another place. Still with me? Uh, let's go over to math uh, to First Corinthians chapter eight. First Corinthians chapter eight. My timekeepers are watching for me here. Still okay? Got a few ten minutes. Okay, we won't get all this finished by a long shot. Chapter eight. Um, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. I like the New International Translation of that better. It says, knowledge puffs up, 
but love builds up. Don't you like that? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. What's he talking about here? What's a big issue in the early church? And the issue was food offered to idols. That's not a big issue today. Nobody in this room, I doubt, worries about whether they're going to eat food offered to idols. Maybe from some cultures in the world, if you came here, you'd be, you'd be concerned about that. But in our culture, we go down to the store and we're not too worried about whatever we buy there. But in that culture, you've got all these new Christians coming into the church and many of them are Gentile Christians, and many of them have spent their lives bowing down to idols, offering a bowl of rice or a bowl of bread or whatever, offering food to the idol, and then they would eat the food. And when they ate the food that had been offered to the idol, they understood that that was an act of worship. And you got Jews who were the backbone of the church. In fact, in Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul tells them that they ought to imitate the churches in Judea. Those are Jewish churches. So you got the Jews that have come in, and the Jews are saying to themselves, I don't care if that's, uh, I don't care if that's been offered to idols. What do I care? It doesn't mean a thing to me. It has, no, it has no pull on my emotions. But for the Gentile coming in at fellowship lunch and they see something on the table, and they go to the Jewish Christian, and they say, was that offered to idols? And the Jewish Christian says, yeah, but so what? You mean it's okay to eat it? Sure. I, I won't be worshiping an idol if I do that? No. So he eats it. But he's got associations out there. And they said, so you ate food offered to, oh yeah, well you're worship. And the next thing you know, this person is being lost to the church. But this is not a small deal. Because down in the supermarket, just about everything's been offered to idols before it's put on sale. And if you're a Jew, this is a great inconvenience. That's why it's no small deal in the early church. Now watch what happens. Watch what happens here. Um, I'm, I'm going to write down to verse uh, 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For when he says we, he's really talking to about the Jewish concept there, even though he's writing to Corinthians. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all are, are all things and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge for some with consciousness of the idol until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But the food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. I'm going to stop right there. For the Apostle Paul, if, you, if he saw an idol, 
and you gave him the idol, it wouldn't bother him a bit. If it's a wooden idol, he's going to cut up, cut it up and use it to cook some food with. If it's got some gold on it, he'll melt it down and make some money out of it. He has no attachment to that idol at all. So for him, food offered to idols means nothing. For him, it's liberty. I don't have any attachment to those idols. You can offer all the food to that. If I'm hungry, I'm going to eat it. It's not going to affect his Christian walk with God at all. But if a Gentile Christian sees the Apostle Paul eating food offered to idols, knows he's eating food offered to idols, and then he says, well, it must be okay to worship these gods somehow, and he's lost to Christ, then the Apostle Paul says, i got a problem. And the early church has a problem. Because now this liberty has become a stumbling block to my brother. Now listen to the strong language now that the Apostle Paul uses about this. Um, verse 10, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat things offered to idols? Let me give you a good example out of that, out of the modern day. You can find some really good meals in casinos. I won't go there and eat. Because I don't know, first of all, I don't want to be around that kind of junk, but there's good reason for that. But if I'm hungry, there are good meals there. I've had this kind of conversation with people. And, but there are also weak Adventists that go there. There are young people that go there. And they see me there. And I may be eating in the restaurant, but they don't dissociate that. They think if I'm there, I might all, and they use that as an excuse to go and do the other stuff. Does that make sense? Following me? So I don't, I don't want to be a stumbling block. Even though it might be my liberty, I'm hungry, I'm not going to gamble. I have no care for any of that. They've got a good salad bar there, and I'm hungry. It might be my liberty to go there. It's not going to affect my Christian. It might be my liberty to go there, but I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go down to the greasy spoon down the road so that I cannot be a stumbling block. We always, you're right, sister, always must place the other one in front of us. Now, you're going to be surprised where this is going to go. And I don't want to go there right now. And I have how many minutes? I have five minutes. Let's finish Paul, and then I'll take you tomorrow where this is going to go. You may be surprised. And because of your knowledge, verse 11, and because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Now, this gets pretty passionate. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. It may not have been a sin for me to eat the food offered to idols. It may not have been a sin for me to go into the casino and eat the meal. But my sin 
comes when a weak brother, a young person, somebody sees me and uses that as an excuse to leave Christ or it draws them out of Christ. Then Paul says, you, Jay Gallimore, have sinned against Christ. Now it becomes serious business. You see. All right, I, I see your hand. Let me go there and then tomorrow we'll... Uh, the only problem that I see is that uh, we might not even, even not ever finish uh, um, complacing or pleasing people where they might think something about our actions. You know, I know going to the casino is not a good idea because of the weaker person, but the way I see it is if we are strong, if we uh, uh, glory ourselves of being strong, so we, we have more responsibility. And we have to protect the weak. In this case, the weak is the person that is new, that is, doesn't have a, a whole profile completed. So it is a greater responsibility for us because we have a greater uh, knowledge or a greater uh, you know, level of maturity or whatever. So the way to show it is to do, it, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, nicely said. What I'm going to do tomorrow is we're going to define the stumbling block. And I'm going to use the church manual to do it tomorrow. Let's stand for the benediction. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us and your love for your church. We pray that all of us as sheep might be a blessing to other sheep, that all of us, Heavenly Father, might be under the influence of the Lord Jesus who was willing to sacrifice his liberty in order that he might redeem us. Give us ever that heart of Christ, that passion to save the lost and to save the weak. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.